All right, I want to ask this, just to open up. Has anybody in here ever made something harder than it needed to be? Church? Family? Anybody ever made family harder than it needed to be? Marriage? Most of you poking your spouses? Yeah. I make grocery shopping harder than it has to be a lot of times, right? Because I'll make my list not in order. Uh, anybody hate that when your list isn't like grouped by where things are? Yeah, thank you, Tony. There's the OCD Brothers Unite. Um, it kills me. If the list is there and at the very, like at the beginning of the list is some produce stuff and then there's like apples later on. I'm like, I was there like 10 minutes ago and I have to walk back. Then I'm mad. Anybody just get mad at things going not their way because you're selfish and prideful? Um, anybody make ending an argument way too hard? Come on, who's the grudge holders? Just raise your hand, just own it, take it. Who's the one that wants to stay mad for a certain period of time so that your spouse pays for it? <laughs> Some of you guys are, are not being honest. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you think it's done, the apology has been said, and then you wait for a few minutes, you're like, you know, that still really did hurt my feelings. When, did anybody do, anybody do that, bring it back up again? Just me? Okay, that's fine. I'm sensitive and selfish and not good at this, and so I have a great wife. <laughs> I think we in the church tend to do this a lot. We make things far harder than they need to be. Amen? Turn to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read Acts 1, 21 and 22. It says, so one, of the men, uh, so one of the men who have accompanied us, this is, I need to back up here. This is Peter speaking. So last week we talked through Judas and we talked through um, the tragic end of his life. And we talked through just the, the unforgiveness we can hold in our heart when Christ clearly loved Judas and uh, Judas was a part of some major things. And so, um, but Judas does die and must be replaced in this office. And this is a prophecy that was spoken. So Peter says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to this resurrection. All right, so uh, he says here, one of the men must do this. Uh, this is an adult male person who's of marriageable age. Scripture makes this same qualification for elders and pastors. We've talked through this um, in our most recent series with 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 9. Um, and this is just one of the clear things here. Does this mean that women are less capable, less deserving of this role? Of course not. It's upholding God's design and creating differences between men and women and the roles that he has given them in the home and in the church. Because did God create men and women different? Yes. Is that good? Yes. So it says they have to be there from the baptism of John. You can find that. Uh, one of the uh, places you can find this is in John 1, 29 through 34. This is the very beginning of Christ's ministry, right? He gets baptized and then this is where his ministry starts. And it says they had to be there until the day when he was taken up. We saw that at the beginning of the, of the book of Acts. They limited the qualified individuals to those who had been a part of Christ's ministry from the very beginning to the very end. This is very spiritually restrictive, right? Because they're saying, no, no, no. Even if you walked in three weeks late, you are disqualified because you had to see the whole thing from baptism to ascension. You had to be there. But it's kind of naturally open, isn't it? Because while we would like to put in there, okay, because some of us that have been on teams that have tried to hire people, um, what if your only qualification was you had to be here for a certain period of time to see something? That seems like it's not enough qualifications, does it? Uh, I also expect that he's going to hold a bachelor's degree in uh, religious studies, going to need a seminary degree from somewhere. He's going to need to be, uh, you know, fun to be around. He's going to need to dress this way, need to act this way, need to speak this way. We like to put extra natural qualifications out there, don't we? 
These are spiritual qualifications. It says one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Witness is one who testifies, and it's really a, a term that's used in court. These restrictive qualifications were not there to form an elite club. They were there to make sure the man that was selected could fulfill the duties of his office. They were there to protect the man and the church both. That both would be clear on God's job description for apostles then and pastors and elders now. So this man was to be a witness. And this is another qualification we see mirrored in Timothy and Titus. He must be able to teach. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. He must be able to give instruction with sound doctrine. He must rebuke those who contradict it. These men were to testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to the world, all while guarding truth from error. This was a huge responsibility. But that makes me think this. What do modern church qualifications look like? Sadly, many of them don't even reference Scripture's clear teaching of them. Most require certain degrees, certain ages, certain styles of dress, certain translations of Scripture, and many more. And do you know what that means? In many churches, Jesus Christ wouldn't be qualified to be their pastor. Is that good? Or have we overstepped? Three verses twenty-three through twenty-five, and as they put forward, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. He had three names, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, "You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place." So two out of 120 people who were at this church at the time, right? So it went from the thousands that originally loved following Jesus. He dropped down after his ascension to there's only 120 left. And out of 120, only two were put forward. But remember, these were tough qualifications. Maybe you had somebody who was a great teacher, very qualified in that respect, but only began following Jesus a year into his ministry or maybe even after his death, like his half-brother James, right? Now, we see James later on speaking for the church at the Jerusalem Council. So James does rise up in leadership, but he was not qualified to be one of these original 12 apostles because he wasn't there the whole time. Maybe there's somebody there who had been there the whole time, but had zero giftedness to teach and to be a witness for for Christ. And so they, they said, man, good that you've been here the whole time. Thank you for your dedication. There's obviously a different role for you, but it can't be this one. So who, who put these men forward? That'd be the 11, right? The the 11 that were left, that motley crew that we talked about originally. Another method we find mirrored in Titus is he is called to appoint elders. The church showed trust in their leaders, even here where they had no input in the decision. They did this because they trusted the God who calls. And we're going to talk about that more in a moment. So justice, this guy who, uh, who, who was put forward, according to Christian tradition, he went on to become the bishop of Eleutheropolis, got it, and he died there as a martyr preaching the gospel of Christ. Is justice an amazing guy? Yes, he is. Matthias, according to Christian tradition, he preached the gospel in Ethiopia, which is in modern day Georgia. And he was martyred there. So both of these men lived great lives, preaching the gospel all all the way to the point of it costing them their lives. These are two qualified men. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. 
just as they are now, the qualifications were set, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is not calling a church to sit under an unqualified pastor. But far too few churches even consider biblical qualifications when they call a pastor or elder. And it's certainly them doing the calling as God certainly did not. What's the first thing they do after finding qualified men? They pray. So they don't go through their own knowledge and say, oh, we have done the work. We found the ones that meet the qualifications. We've done all this good for us. Now let's debate. Now let's talk. Let's argue. Let's fight. Let's uh, campaign. I'm doing that. They pray. We say we trust God, but do our prayer lives actually reflect this? The first church trusted God and trusted the leaders he called to hear from them. And then they said, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of, uh, in this ministry and apostleship. In their prayer, they recognized that it is not they who, called, who call pastors, but God. And they trust him to do it. Men can be deceived, but God cannot. Anybody in here ever been deceived? Anybody ever misjudged someone's character? Me too. Do we display this kind of trust in God in our church's decision-making process? How would this decision have been made in most churches today to replace the 12th apostle? How many committees, teams, and interviews and votes would be required to replace this person? Were we doing it our way, it would look very different than it does in Scripture. Which should carry more weight, the way we've always done it or what we find in the word? It says uh, to replace this, from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. Many would assume that this confirms that Judas is in hell. He may be. We talked about this, right? That he, we have no indication that he actually uh, requested repentance, that he actually uh, accepted Christ as a savior. It never says that. But we do know that Christ desired his salvation. And I want to say this. I didn't make this clear last week. The reason Judas may be in hell would only be because he didn't trust in Christ as his savior, not because of his suicide. Does that make sense? Christ can forgive all things. And mental health is not a reason to say that somebody has lost salvation because that does not work that way. Could be referring to Judas's earthly abandoning of Jesus and the others. You can, if you want to uh, look at this whole message on Judas, look at last week on YouTube, or um, we now do podcasts of the message. So wherever you listen to podcasts, search for Clinging Ridge, you can find it there. I'm going to read verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay, I want you to get this. The way they picked between these two qualified men was a long, lengthy debate and argument over who was going to be the best in the role. It was a, a vote among the 120 of who they wanted the most. Nope. They drew lots. How irresponsible. No way this happens anywhere else in scripture, right? Oh, wait. Uh, Old Testament. Numbers 26, 52 through 56. I'm not going to read it. This is how they divvy out the land to the tribes of Israel as they draw lots to see who's going to get what. 
Joshua 7, 10 through 15, they drew lots because there was somebody who had sinned against God by taking things uh, from, a, from pagan worship. They'd taken things that were unclean and put it in their house. And these, uh, they put them forward tribe by tribe in front of, the, in, in, in front of the, the leaders. And they drew lots and one tribe would be selected. And then they'd take that one tribe and they'd say, now you're going to come before us clan by clan. And then when the clan, the lot fell in the clan, they'd say, all right, now that clan's going to come forward family by family. And then when that family was picked, then they went forward man by man until God showed them who it was that took the unclean things. God used lots in Joshua. Proverbs 16, I'll read this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So this irresponsible wild method that we would never accept inside of the church today has a very biblical root. They had explicit trust in God's sovereignty and his chosen leadership. This was a one vote election. God's vote was the only one that mattered. And they used a game of chance to hear his vote. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They could trust God because their leaders had only put forward qualified men. Either of these men could have been chosen. But is this how we see elections in churches today? No, it seems like everyone's desire matters except for God's. We've talked about this before, so I'll be brief. Do we see any other real votes in scripture? You see the vote for the golden calf, right? Whenever uh, Moses is on the mountain and the people of Israel come together saying, let's make our own God that we can look at. That'll make us feel better. That, that went well for them, right? You see the vote of uh, when the scouts of the 12 tribes went to the, the promised land, right? They went out to look and see where God called them to go. And they came back and 10 said, hey, there's giants there. We're not going. Let's go back to Egypt. You had two who said, no, we're going to go because God's on our side. Guess who won? The 10. What was the consequence? 40 years in wilderness. You had a vote of the people of Israel when they said, hey, all these other nations have kings. We want to be like them. Samuel said, no, God's your king. And they said, nah, but we want our own. The vote won and they got Saul. The last vote that I I see in scripture is when Pilate is trying his best to free Jesus. And the popular vote is no murder him. I don't think that this system is restrictive as in it must be used for every decision. I don't think we have to draw lots or or straws or or throw dice or whatever for every decision. But the apostles and elders after them, uh, uh, because the apostles and elders after them do not use it for every decision. But I do think that churches have run far from the heart of this biblical process, which is trusting God and trusting those that he has chosen to lead. The mob system has become common for all of our lives, right? Every single one of us have always grown up with whoever is loudest and has the most people on their side wins, right? But it is relatively contemporary inside of this method of governance. It's only been around for a couple hundred years for a 2,000 year old faith in Christ and it can't be found in the Bible. This does not mean, I wanna be clear here. This does not mean that the men that God calls won't Make mistakes because I will make lots of them. Kenneth will make lots of them. Every one of our elders will make lots of mistakes. But there is a biblical and godly way to deal with mistakes made in leadership. 
when you complain or criticize a decision or direction in the church, is it based on the word or your preferences? Are you following Christ's command to go first to the person who has offended you alone? Or are you going to as many people as you can amass in your army as you can? Who looks more like Christ? The one who demands his way or the one who places the needs and desires of others before himself? Who is more likely to reach others with the gospel of Christ? The person who shows up only saying, give me my way. Or the person who walks in saying, how can I serve everyone else in this room? I'll tell you historically how the church has spread. And it's been by that second group. The ones who say, it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what I prefer. As long as we're inside the bounds of biblical authority, my role here is to serve others. That's how the gospel spreads in Cleveland. I want you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I have a couple of questions to walk through as we just discuss this passage. First, how much do you trust God really? Do you trust him with the decisions of your life? Is your first response to trials to pray or to take matters into your own hands? Whose desires mean more to you, your own or God's? Second set of questions. Do you truly believe that God calls and equips some to lead in the church as his Bible says? If you believe that, will you choose to trust in his design for leadership in the church? Will you choose to trust in those he calls, even if it costs you your preferences? I know that with the people that we have here today, especially with many people visiting, I, I want to say this. Maybe there's some people in here who can say, I've never had a desire for Christ's preferences because he's never been king of my life. I've never surrendered him. He's never saved me. He's never changed me. So of course I don't desire what he desires. I've only ever desired what I want and it's always failed me. If that's you, I beg you this morning to ask questions, come forward, talk to someone and surrender your life to Christ who saves sinners like us. But whatever you do, I pray that you would be challenged by scripture, wrestle with it and submit yourself to it. Jesus, I pray that you guide us to you this morning. I pray as we respond to this time of, of invitation and application that, Lord, if there's people that need to just pray, need to ask forgiveness, that you give them the courage to, to come before you and ask you to forgive them of putting their preferences ahead of your design. Lord, if there's people in here who have conversations that they've had with everyone but the person they need to, I pray you would convict them to have that conversation, to walk forward and say what's hurting, what's bothered, what they don't understand so that you can bring restoration and unity like you've called to be in your church. In fact, you demanded unity to be here. And Jesus, I pray that as you lead our church and lead the people you call to lead your church, that you'd help us to lead well, help us to listen well. And Christ, help 
the church to be edified by a complete submission to your word and your word alone. In your name I pray, amen. Please stand and respond however God leads you. This is my